Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front, and they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company, and if you enter the code ZIBBY, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm here today with William, Bill, Billy, Willie, whatever, Dameron, <laughs> the author of The Lie, a memoir of two marriages, catfishing, and coming out, which was so good. And we just got, he just showed me the hardcover, which is so beautiful. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you for having of me course. and for your love of books. Oh it's, my gosh. It's wonderful. So a little more about you. William Dameron is the author of, as I said, The Lie, a memoir of two marriages, catfishing, and coming out, which was chosen as the Amazon First Reads book pick for June 2019, which is really exciting. He is an award-winning blogger and essayist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and HuffPost, among others. He's also published an essay in the book, Fashionably Late, Gay, Bi, and Trans Men Who Came Out Later in Life. That's like a fantastic title. He <laughs> is the IT director for a global economic consulting firm and currently splits his time between Boston and the southern coast of Maine, which is closer, they're closer than I thought. <laughs> and now that I hear about your trans schedule with his husband and their blended family of five kids. Good? Good. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and I have to say for this new hardcover, you can't tell from looking, but the bottom is like a parchment-y type feeling and the top is this like smooth wax paper. Yeah, vellum. So vellum, it's a very tactile yes. feel. So it's, yeah. it's, it's great even just to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell listeners what The Lie is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. About a few years ago, I received an email from a woman I had never met. The first line of the email said, your face has meant a lot to me, and now I found out it's a lie. And she went on to describe how she had a four-year online relationship with this man who used my pictures to catfish her. And when I did a Google image search, I found out my face is synonymous with the search phrase, 40-year-old white man. They just got married somehow. And when I found that out, I also discovered it wasn't just her that was catfished. It was countless women who had been catfished, and they have contacted me over the years. In case someone doesn't know what catfishing is. Yes. So catfishing is when somebody pretends to be somebody they're not on the Internet, and they'll use somebody else's picture to sort of lure people into an online relationship. A lot of people think it's just for money, but it's really an emotional thing. Somebody is uncomfortable with who they are, so they become somebody else. So it was like the universe was calling me out. Because a decade prior, I had pretended to be somebody I was not, to my wife, to my daughters, and to myself. I was a gay man in a straight marriage. So that experience caused me to take a look at, at what we do when we sort of put on these false identities and become someone we're not. It forced me to take a look not just at my actions, but how my actions affected everybody else. And so... It's, it's a book about what we do with all of that sort of pain and lost hope when our supposed truths are unmasked for lies. And how did it become a book? Like, how did you, what made you write it? You had all these amazing, yeah. you know, compelling experiences. So I began writing. I didn't start writing until I came out because nothing sounded authentic. I always wanted to be a writer. But after I came out, I suddenly had all this energy 
And I started writing blog posts, personal blog posts about my life with my now husband, how wonderful it was. But I realized I needed to look back. So I took an online writing class, Gotham Writers Workshop here in New York. I started on December 12th, 2012. So it was one, two, one, two, one, two, just like little steps. And I started writing chapters and it took probably about five years to put that together. But it was important for me to get this story out because after so many years of telling lies, I really had to tell the truth. I said to you earlier when we were chatting, it felt like you sat down and wrote it all at once. (laughs) And not in a bad way, in a way in that it flowed so seamlessly one thing into the other, even though some of it was so long ago Mm -hmm. and some of it was much more recent. Did you, at the time keep a journal or how did you remember how do you remember everything so clearly because it feels like when you're reading it that you're like right there and it was almost surprising to me when I found out it was a while ago that's fantastic that you say that thank you I actually have this really good recall and it freaks some of my friends out I remember sitting (laughs) at a dinner a, a company dinner once and somebody was telling a story about how they moved to Mashpee. And I recounted that whole story, how her father decided they should do that. And I realized everybody was looking at me like, why do you know this? But it's just a recall that I have. I remember conversations. I remember what somebody wore, the way the weather was that day. So I think that's why it's all still in my head. The other thing is after I came out, I went to a therapist, and he introduced me to a man named Hans, Mm -hmm. who had gone through the same thing, and we had an email correspondence. Because he was Jehovah's Witness, he came out, his firm was uh, mostly Jehovah's Witnesses, and they weren't allowed to speak to him because he was gay. And so he had no one to talk to during the day, and I had nobody to talk to because I didn't feel like I could tell anybody else. And so we had probably six or seven emails a day, every day for 100 days. And so I have an email journal of that entire period. So I know exactly what day, what happened, and conversations we had. Wow. So I can refer to those. And you described your relationship with Hans so nicely in the book, too. Like, I feel like I could (laughs) see the whole thing. Um, And so you wrote an article in Modern Love in the New York Times called After 264 Haircuts, a Marriage Ends, which becomes part of this book. Was it excerpted? What order did everything happen in? How did that come about? It became... But the fifth most read essay of 2017. Yeah. That has to feel good. That's amazing. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was surprising and overwhelming and wonderful all in once. Because Modern Love has forever been one of my favorite columns. So I actually went on a writing retreat with this writing group in Vieques, Puerto Rico. And my manuscript was done at that point. And everybody read it and said, okay, you're ready. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and publish it. I didn't think I was ready. I went home, I wrote maybe three or four query letters to agents. They were half-hearted. I didn't hear anything back. So I thought, all right, if this is meant to be, I'm going to take my best writing, which was the haircuts chapter, I'm going to whittle it down, and I'm going to send it to Dan Jones of the New York Times. I didn't hear anything for months and months, and I thought, all right, it's not meant to be. And then he sent me a single email said, I love your essay. I want to print it. I need to do it right away. Is your family okay with it? Which is sort of similar to your response. Like, it sounds like this just happened. He was of the feeling that this just happened too, though it was years in the past. 
He had had an essay that was falling apart for whatever reason and needed to fill that slot quickly. His assistant gave him a stack of 99 essays. Oh, my gosh. Mine was on the bottom. He turned it over, started from the bottom, and that was mine. No way. So timing and luck are so much in this business. So once that was published, 30 minutes after it was online, an agent contacted me and said, Okay, so I hear you're writing a memoir. Maybe I can help. And the wonderful thing is, it was my dream agent. It's Christopher Schelling. He is Augustine Burroughs' agent Mm -hmm. and husband. And I loved Augustine's book, Running with Scissors, Draw, all of those. So it just felt like it was meant to be. And that's so, so the book came first. And I, I knew that essay, that chapter was for me the most important because it showed how hard it was to say goodbye and the love that I had for my family. And I needed to make sure that came through. It was beautiful. Thank you. So your ex-wife, and this is sort of a random question, but I've been curious about it. So maybe you could just spend like two seconds on it. But your ex-wife was adopted and you go a lot into her story of life as well. You, in like just one paragraph or something, say, it was like an Oprah Winfrey moment (laughs) when she met her birth family and now they're in touch and whatever. So could you give me a little more about that experience? Because after reading the book, you get really invested sort of in Catherine and her life and her like mental health struggles and all the rest of it. So I just, I know this might come out of order for people who don't know what I'm talking about, (laughs) but during the book, she finds out, she goes on this quest. She has always known she's adopted and finds her birth family. Right. I hope I'm not giving it away. No, no. I think that's a really important part of the book because I think the connection that Catherine and I had was sort of rooted in this feeling of being a little lost. Mm -hmm. Like, what was... What's our history? Who is our family? There was a missing puzzle piece, and I knew what that felt like. So she she was adopted, and she always wanted to know where she came from. She always wanted to know who her birth family was. And so from the moment we were married, we really started searching in earnest to try and find her birth family. We actually went to the adoption agency and sat down across the table, and the social worker sort of pulled out this folder and gave us a sanitized version of, you know, what her birth mother and birth father were like, physical characteristics, things they liked to do. And then she left the folder on the table, and she went to go answer the door. We were so young and naive then. We didn't know that this was, here it is, just take a look at it and open it. But we sat there staring at that folder for like five minutes, like, do we pick it up? Do we not? And we didn't, because we didn't know. And so... She found a man who's called the searcher, and the searcher is some sort of shadowy figure who has information that other people don't. He was able to get Catherine's birth mother's address, phone number, age, all of the information matched up. So Catherine, I I left her with the kids, went down to the park. Catherine got on the phone, called her mother and said, I was born on this date at this place. And her birth mother said, oh, my God, let me call you back. Because she had not told her then family that she had had this other child. She called her back and she said, there's not a day I haven't thought about you. So she found this puzzle piece and they became like a real mother and daughter. And the thing is, she also had a birth sister, which she always in her head thought that she had. Her birth sister didn't know she had this older sister And they became best friends, and their mannerisms and the way they look, it's so 
they're so similar. So here was Catherine searching for this blood family when she was in this adoptive family. Someone, you know, this family gave her up and she was looking for a family that would choose her and never give her up. And she found them again. And here I was with my blood family feeling so disconnected. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was those two stories really sort of meshed together in a way. I knew the truth. She didn't know the truth. And both of those things were crushing for us. But she continues to this day to have a wonderful relationship with them. So, What a story. Yeah. Gosh, one of many great stories. <laughs> when you write about Catherine's brief hospitalization, you write, insanity is the inability to distinguish fantasy from reality. Could I see the difference? I thought I could, but I honestly believed my secret thoughts and desires were disordered. And if acted upon, it would condemn me to hell and ruin all that we had built. Carrying that around, <laughs> I mean, how, I, you, I mean, you describe it in the book, but tell me more about how it felt, just feeling that sense of, Just how did that feel for you? Yeah, I think as children, we sort of learn these absolutes, things that go into our heads without any sort of filter to process them. I don't know, like you learn about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or things like that, and you just accept it as this is fact. Mm -hmm. But you're a child and you don't know how to process that. I think even as you grow up, there's sort of this belief still in your head that, oh, maybe Santa Claus really does exist. You also learn the other things that, Uh, For me, my church, my family, everyone said being gay is disordered. It's not normal. It It was classified as a mental disease. And all of that went into my head as an absolute. And that if I acted on that, I would go to hell. That was just the belief. And I never questioned it. But as I got older, It sort of was always in the back of my head, sort of niggling at me. And there was this cognitive dissonance of, okay, I I know this isn't true, but it's still in my head that this is true. And little by little, it begins to tear you down. It begins to just make you act out in ways that, that are so uncharacteristic. And it's so tiring to always hide yourself. You have to keep everything super organized in the closet because you're afraid somebody might find something. And eventually it just, you can't exist that way. It's so funny. You always hear the expression in the closet, but now you have like a visual of what that closet is looking like. It's like, turns out it's for the container store. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) I do have to say my husband is very much like that. Everything is organized. In the scene, in which your daughters and your ex-wife, so you dabbled with steroid use at some point and really revamped your body. And that Mm -hmm. was a big sort of theme throughout the book is sort of your physical changes as your emotions started coming out. So you wrote about this scene like this, and I just have to read it, even though it's a little bit long because it was so beautiful. When I looked into the eyes of Olivia and Claire now, those are your daughters. Obviously, you know that. Those are his daughters. (laughs) I felt something slipping away, my hands unwrapping from theirs. It drained me and dissipated in the crack beneath the front door like the vanishing sunlight. If this were a film playing out and the camera panned, you would see a family of four standing silently by the front door with no sense of whether they were coming or going, pulling farther back a set of upset kitchen chairs lying on their backs, and then drifting above the house, the gnarled branches of leafless trees hovering over a roof where chattering squirrels pranced and mocked a barking dog. Just beyond this house were other similar homes where warm yellow lights began to illuminate windows and the headlights of cars cast yellow triangles in the dark driveways. Behind the doors of those houses... You might hear the muffled cries of excited children running toward the front door, holding out their hands and shouting, 
daddy's home. Oh, that was so beautiful. (laughs) Tell me more about that scene. And by showing it in that way, you're really kind of suggesting who knows what's going on in all the other homes, right? Exactly. That chapter, that was sort of the second time that I used that technique of sort of pulling back the camera and looking at life from a different angle because I wanted the reader to be able to see it that way. The first time I was on top of a slide with my daughter, Olivia, and Mm -hmm. she was young, four years old, and she wanted to go down this slide and she was afraid to do it. And I said, no, I'll go with you. So we climbed up to the top of the slide and we could sort of see the playground from a bird's eye view. And then the second time I used this technique where my ex-wife and my daughters have discovered a bag of syringes and these steroids I was taking. And I used that technique there because for me, it was kind of an out-of-body experience. And that's what it felt like, was like this scene was a memory before it even played out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things affect us that way. And so the slide and this discovery of these steroids were sort of the same thing. We were up at the top. We were in this beautiful home, in this beautiful neighborhood, all the things that we always wanted. And here I was with Sophie on top of this slide. And it was inevitable that we were going to slide down and there might be ruination at the end of that slide. And so Sophie said, Daddy, please don't let go as I go down the slide. But somebody waxed it. And I couldn't hold on to her. And you have to decide, are you going to hold on to your child and possibly crush her or do you let go? And this is what was happening. But we never know what's happening in people's homes. We just see these beautiful exteriors. And you let go of her, right? And I let go. I had to let go. And she tumbled. And here again, this other time. I was in a way letting go because my daughters discovered this terrible secret that I was holding. And I knew sort of in that instant that eventually I was going to have to let go of them to sort of rescue myself because otherwise I would crush them. But things happen in other people's homes that we're unaware of. And who knows what was playing out in all the other houses in our neighborhood at that time. Wow, it was really beautiful. So when your ex-wife Catherine confronts you about being gay, she says, she finally says, okay, are you gay? And you come out to her by simply admitting, I don't want to be. Tell me about that moment in the car. Yeah, it it seems like such a simple statement. It was something that took me, uh, I mean, Catherine was the first person that I came out to. I tried to come out to my mother decades previous, and there's a chapter about that. Um... But there was this heaviness that was over us since that previous chapter. And I think we both sort of knew what was going on with our marriage. And I used an analogy. It was like Jenga. Each of us were sort of pulling out blocks. But we both silently agreed not to pull out the one that would destroy our marriage. But there comes a point where you just have to ask that question. And I wasn't even able to say I'm gay. I had to say the opposite of that. I don't want to be. Because for my entire life, I had tried so hard not to be. And I knew the answer would crush her. So I tried to be as honest as possible. And it seemed like an eternity between her asking and me answering. I just knew at that point, when you love someone, you can't continue to lie to them. And so I had to give her the truth knowing that that would be the sledgehammer that would crush our marriage. But at the same time, 
When you tell the truth after lying for so many years, there's this lightness that you feel because you finally told someone. And it was such a strange, raw emotion to tell the person who you love, who you've been with, that this is who you are and this might mean the end of us. Oh, wow. Later in the book, people ask you, why did it take you so long? Like, why was it so hard? And you list many reasons. And you, I'm going to take out some of your curse words, just in (laughs) case anybody's listening with their kids, which I doubt anyway at this point in this interview. But anyway, because my mother blanked me over every single day by saying being gay was disgusting and that I would never be happy because I thought being gay was disgusting. And if I was gay, I was disgusting because I thought I would go to hell because religion blanked me over by telling me my feelings were sinful because I was broken. This is sort of a continuation on Mm -hmm. the rest. Did all of those things building up, is that what made it so hard to admit everything or the the many reasons, I'm sure. Yeah, it was all of those reasons. And again, those were sort of all the absolutes that Mm -hmm. I had learned growing up and they were a part of me. And at that point, and, and I actually thought those things when Claire was going to bed and she asked me, are you gonna tell your mother? And and why did you wait so long? And that's when it hit me, all of these absolutes that I thought were truths mm-hmm. were all lies. And when that hits you and you're looking at your daughter, putting her to bed and you realize the pain that they're going to experience and that you've created. I think that's why so many of the F-bombs made it into mm-hmm. that statement. Yeah. It was just I had to sort of let it out in my head that when we force someone to be somebody they're not, we're not just hurting that person. There's collateral damage, and that collateral damage was Catherine and my daughters. And all of those supposed truths and absolutes were just lies. And that's an important message in this book, is just to learn what the truth is. Do you think that someone who's a teenager now, do you think things have changed enough that they could avoid this whole trajectory? Do you think it varies by what part of the country you're in? I know you grew up in the South. Do you think, like, what, to someone who's sort of of that age, would they have to go through that? What do you think? It still happens. I know it still happens. And in certain parts of the country, certainly, it is still occurring, especially in the South. I, Because of the different articles and essays I've published, I hear from people who are going through this. I hear from teenagers and 20-year-olds who are still trying to figure out how to come out. I think it's lessened, which is great. But there is this entire generation like me who sort of made this promise back in the 70s and 80s that they were going to get married to a woman or it's a woman who is going to get married to a man and they were going to stick with that promise. And then little by little, you build an entire life on that. And how can you then roll that back or destroy it? It can be tough. Oh, my gosh. But luckily, or I shouldn't say it's luck, but fortunately, you end up falling in love and starting this new relationship, and you sort of detail your the beginning of dating and all of that. And then now you've ended up in this beautiful relationship with Paul and you're married and mm-hmm. the five kids, like, and all of you laying on the ground. I hope that's 
I'm not, is that giving it away? No. I can take oh, this no, question out. No, certainly not. But it's no, just so fine. nice. I mean, I know it's like your life. Can I give away your life? <laughs> you can like go on Instagram and see that you're happy. But how great is that? I mean, I feel like this is such an ins- inspiration. Like this whole story of yours is like, it's never too late, really. Is it? You only have one life. That's right. Yeah. I was 43 when I came out. And now at 55, my first book will be out. And so it's a testament that it's never too late. It is never too late to become your true self to become your authentic self. And it took a lot of work to get there. And it was really important to end this book with a celebration because when you're in the closet, you have these celebrations, but you never truly celebrate. Birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, they're all celebrations, but when you're in the closet, you're not celebrating those completely. And I think that's why the queer community, LGBTQ people, take so much pride in celebrating. June is Pride Month. It's a time for celebration because we want to not only be accepted and tolerated, but celebrated because for our life, we don't get to do that. And when you come out, you can have these celebrations. And it was like, you know, my world exploded But then all the pieces came back together in a way that made sense. And with that scene with Paul and all of our kids were sort of laying on the dance floor, looking up at these paper lanterns that Paul hung up for our wedding. And and they looked like a constellation of planets. And that's the way it felt that we were. We were suddenly this constellation and this new universe that really worked. So That's so nice. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. What a story. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to write their own stories like this or people who may still be in the closet and are not sure what to do? Yes. So those are sort of two I mean, two totally. I wasn't going to ask the other one, but I'm like. No, but there's sort maybe of. Maybe <laughs> people are listening. Maybe there are moms out there sending this to friends who they know. I don't know. Who knows? They're sort of related Even in a way. Even if it helps one person. <laughs> so for anybody who's still in the closet, I want them to know it's never too late. It is really never too late. I have spoken to men and women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're going through this. And it's never too late to tell the truth. And I do believe that it's really important to tell the truth, even if that means sort of... <sighs> hurting relationships, because that person that you're with doesn't really know who you are anyway. And and you deserve to give them that truth. If you truly love them, you deserve to give them that truth. And you deserve to tell yourself. The other thing for writers, and this is how it's connected, is for writers, I would say, write the thing that you think you cannot say. Because once you put that down on the paper, you gain power over the truth. And that's what I had to do in this book. I had to write the thing I couldn't say because it's so much scarier in your head than it is on the page. Once it's on the page and you look at it and you're like, okay, I've got you. You're not a monster anymore. I can sort of tame you. So I would say for writers to do that and to... Never give up when people tell you your story is not compelling or your writing is nothing special. And I've heard this, I've heard those things before. Don't give up. That's your story. And nobody can tell it the way that you can. 
Beautiful. Have you seen these ads? This is so random, but I feel like they're for Verizon about people who are coming out and calling their families and they're saying it's never too late to call back and tell someone they love you. I actually have not seen Oh my that. gosh, we're going to turn this off and I'm going to play this for you and you're going to cry. Like I, I probably will. I cried watching. Anyway, it might not even be Verizon. I don't even know who it is. It's some phone company and it's, anyway, I'll have to, I'll show it to you next. That's well, fantastic. whatever, free publicity perhaps for Verizon, if it's even that. What is coming next for you now is the last question. Are you going to write... Another, I mean, what's next? I know you have a big job anyway as yeah, in, in so your real life. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yes, I do. So I have my day job as an IT director with a wonderful firm. I have to say, my firm has been so supportive. My first actual book reading event was for my firm at wow. a corporate retreat. They asked me to read to them. Aww, so they're so supportive. As my family has also been of this of this book, it's, it's actually healed old wounds with my daughters and with my mother. They have all come out in support of it. So I feel like I've already succeeded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's good. But the next step is the book actually comes out publicly July 1st. And I've got a list of places that I'm going to go and tour. I have an essay coming out in the New York Times oh, yeah. on June 14th for Father's Day, which is wonderful. And next, I am going to write another book. I have decided to write, however, a novel that's Mm. based on true life. My aunt was a lesbian. Her uncle was gay. And his aunt was a lesbian. So we have this long queer line that goes through our family. And we have all these stories that I think are yearning to be told that just haven't been told. But my mother is so into Ancestry.com that she (laughs) has found out everything about them, where they've been, what they've done, who they lived with. So I'm going to fictionalize that and create a novel between two aunts and two nephews and two different generations. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with the world and for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 